you pray with me? Our most gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is good for us to draw near to you. In fact, the nearer the better. And it is best of all when we come to be nearest of all in the kingdom of glory. And we look forward to that day. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Father God, that for the day when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of, his, of the Lord and of his Christ, when you take your great power and you reign, even though the nations rage, and that you set up your throne where Satan's throne is, and you let every thought be taken captive to obey you, and that the law of your kingdom would be magnified and be made glorious. Father, until the day you establish your kingdom in its fullness, let us be ever diligent to proclaim your gospel. For our world is in need of grace. It is a lost and dying world. It is one that is ruled by the God of this age, the prince of darkness, the great accuser. And our great need is for your gospel to rule in our hearts. Father, we have falsely believed that political solutions are the answers, um, are the answers to our spiritual problems. We pray, Father God, and we are grieved that disagreements over politics and worldviews have led to threats of death and acts of violence. Father, we are grieved by the events of this week where people's lives were threatened by those whose minds are not right. Father, we are no longer capable of disagreement without hating and hurting. Lord, we need your Son. This is a testimony. We need the gospel of grace. We are in such great need, Father God. Violent acts against places of worship. Father, we, uh, while we have many... differences with the Jewish faith, Lord God, who have not accepted your Son, we also realize that we have an intimate connection because the Gospel came through the Jews. Our Savior was born of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David. He was a son of Abraham. And we long for the day, Lord God, when... Um, there will be a renewal amongst the children of Abraham. We need your son. This is a day of remorse, a day of grieving, a day of lamenting violence and threats of violence. It is a day, Lord God, when we recognize how much we need the gospel. Father, I pray that we would not be people who remain silent to the, the answer to the problem. We are grateful for men and women who make laws. But laws, Father God, do not heal broken hearts and hurting hearts and hearts that are depraved from the fall. We are in great need of the gospel. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us to pray. I think of your disciples who did not ask Teach us to sing or teach us to, to preach a sermon. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Father, teach us to pray. Help us, Lord God, to be diligent in, in prayer because our flesh resists it. My flesh resists praying. When I have opportunity, I find something else to do. Teach us to pray. Help us, Father, to be faithful witnesses to this world in both word and deed. I pray, Father God, that our actions are, are parallel or in line with the things we say. That we would love, you, love as you loved. That we would serve as you served. 
that we would seek the lost with the gospel of life. Teach us, Lord God, to love your word, which is the bread of life, nourishing the soul. And so, Lord, grant us favor this day. These things we ask for the sake of Christ, our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. All right. Well, folks, um, just as you're turning in the, the gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 43, 44 through 46 will be our text today. And um, you will note your uh, little flyers, these uh, sheets in, in your bulletins that speak of a we're concluding a month of fasting. It seems like we just started, huh? So we've been fasting this month. I, I would love to hear. I'll probably put out an email and perhaps even ask, how have you guys done? Has God done anything in your life? Has he taught you something, showed you something through your time of fasting? So think about that. Also remember, one of the things we do with our fasting is that the money that we would have spent on food for those 12 meals or however uh, many meals you fasted, um, we want you to, um, to donate that to a gospel organization. We have a um, Samaritan's Purse. Since we have shoebox ministry going on, that might be an opportunity. Maybe fill some extra shoeboxes. Lottie Moon Christmas offerings coming up. That supports overseas missions. Um, there are numerous different ways to, uh, there are, are many places that need the gospel. Payson Christian Clinic might be an opportunity. Um, we have a lot of opportunities for you to, uh, and it doesn't have to be one we suggest. Maybe there's something near and dear to your heart. You know a missionary. Personally. Send them your fasting money, they would greatly appreciate it. So we make no demand on you as to where you send that. We're just saying you've saved some money because you haven't eaten those meals. And so we would like you to then um, bless and, and contribute to the work of the Lord. So, um, all right. A couple other things. First of all, I do. I, I can't get through today's message without... First saying, I know we have a, a first-time guest here. We do not make guests stand up and we do not introduce you, but we do have a first-time guest and we do have to, if you have not met Nora, you do need to met, meet Nora this, this week. And many of you have made your way to meet Nora. We have been blessed to see her um, here today. And uh, Nora, welcome. She's what, a week old? Almost two. Boy, she's getting older. Just, just like that, they grow up. They grow up just like that. First, they're born. Next thing you know, they're two weeks old. So um, uh, we, we are, are grateful with that. And kids, you got your, what color sheet do we have today? It's yellow. Everybody got a yellow sheet? Evan's got, got a yellow sheet. Oh, we even have clipboards. Nice. There is a secret phrase this week, and so you will need to fill in. Your secret phrase, um, that is a requirement. I, and I, Joseph, you got a secret? You got, okay, good. All right. Well, with that, um, that's enough preliminary stuff. We are um, continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 43, 44 through 56. And this is the death of Christ, the crucifixion, and we would... We would hold here at the church on Randall Place that central to the Christian faith is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is really this, one of the central aspects of Christianity. In the death of Christ, sin's penalty is paid and in the resurrection is evidence it is that the payment has been accepted. So payment is made. Payment has been accepted. Your sins are forgiven. This is where we're at. This is such an important element of the Christian faith. Christ died for sins. It is important. There is a great need for the remembrance and the preaching and the speaking and the teaching of the crucifixion. Because we need to keep in mind that the dying of Jesus is more, his death was more than simply a good example. It was more than an example of self-sacrifice. Oh, look how he loved. He died for something he really believed in. 
or it is an example of self-sacrifice or a demonstration of one who loves some, somebody else. The death of Christ accomplished something. It did something. And too often, I fear that the trend in preaching or the trend in Bible study tends towards the therapeutic. That is, it tends towards felt needs or self-improvements. And the message of the cross has been diluted to the point where a, a presentation of the crucifixion of Christ could be presented anywhere and not be rejected. I pray that this day, that this message would be received well in the Christian church. But it may cause offense in other places because it does confront our sin and our need for a Savior. But I hear so many presentations that would work well at an Elks Lodge. It is a good motivational speech. And so today we will preach the Christ crucified. So if you will, let's look at our text today and follow along with me in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 56. Listen to God's inerrant word. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from a Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. When he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been yet been laid, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. And this ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We began, last week we began with talking about Jesus um, being crucified, Jesus on the cross, and we, we picked that theme up today, but now we pick it up at about the ninth hour, and at about the, I'm sorry, at about the sixth hour, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. This is basically from noon to three. And Luke talks about these two cosmic signs, if you will, two signs that accompany the um, the crucifixion that occurred during this three-hour segment. And the first sign, the first cosmic sign Luke informs us of is that darkness covered the earth. The whole land was covered in darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. For three hours prior to this darkness, mockers have been mocking and scoffers have been scoffing. They've been saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself. Or, look, you're the Christ. Come down off that cross. If you are God's son, come on down. And they mocked and they jeered and they scoffed at the Lord. And then at the sixth hour, darkness falls over the land. And now it's almost like Luke silences the mocking crowd. Perhaps they were silent. Perhaps when darkness came over the earth, perhaps everybody just stood quiet. You see... Because when darkness covered the earth, this meant something. While Luke silences the crowd, there is a new presence. There is a new character who has arrived on the scene. It is not a Roman centurion. It is not a Roman governor. It is not the Jewish Sanhedrin. It is not some scoffer or mocker from another cro- from another, hanging from another cross. 
This is God Almighty has shown up at the, on the scene. God is now at Calvary. God the Father has come and darkness has covered the land. Darkness will be evident. I'm going to demonstrate that darkness shows that God is now on the scene. This is a supernatural occurrence. And I think we're going to see from the reaction of the, of the people that they understood that this was a supernatural occurrence. Some people have sought to explain the darkness that covered the land. Some people have said, well, it must have been an eclipse. It could not have been an eclipse because eclipses, or eclipse eye, I don't know how you say the plural of eclipse, but eclipses, multiple, anyways, eclipses, do not occur during a full moon. And this is Passover. It is a full moon. It was not an eclipse. Others have said, well, perhaps it was a Sirocco wind that were prevalent or not unusual in that area and it blew out dust and it darkened the sun. There is no account that there was some sort of wind that blew up the dust. This is a supernatural darkness. Darkness has covered the land. This is the presence of God Almighty. And I will say, it is not just the presence of God Almighty. It is the presence of God Almighty showing up to judge. He has come now in judgment. In fact, when God shows up in the Old Testament, we see one of the common uh, signs of God's appearing um, or of God being present, especially in terms of judgment, is darkness. One of the, a couple great examples. Remember when God judged um, Egypt, one of the plagues he sent was darkness. But not just that. If we look over in Joel, just to give you an idea that darkness is often um, a sign of God showing up for judgment. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. Joel is talking about God showing up in judgment. And the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw from their shining. It is very common when God shows up on the scene that there is darkness. The earth trembles. Stars fall from the sky. This is common uh, language in the Bible of God showing up in judgment. And then over in Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, we see the same type of thing. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15, we read, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. This is the day of the Lord that God has come in judgment and darkness signifies that God is now on the scene. But perhaps maybe our best, one of our best examples we find in the book of Amos In Amos chapter 8, I put some of the verses up on, on the screen, but Amos chapter 8, verses 7 through 10. I'll read the whole thing. The Lord, basically, God is going to judge Israel in this particular passage because they have mocked God. They have not followed His word, and now this is God saying, I'm coming to judge. And this is what He says. The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. That should frighten. Shall not the land tremble on this account? Remember, the other gospel writers spoke of an earthquake that, that occurred at the crucifixion of Christ. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it. We're going to get there. And all of it rises like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight and your feast will be turned to morning. This is a time the sun has gone down at noon and the land has grown dark. This is God showing up in judgment. Judgment has come and our sin is being judged by God. But here's the thing we need to ask ourselves. Who's being judged? This is not judgment on the Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to a cross. It is not judgment upon the Jewish Sanhedrin who illegally 
tried him in a kangaroo court and brought him, though innocent, before Pilate to be crucified. This is not judgment on those who are mocking and scoffing him. This is judgment falling upon the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At this point, darkness has come. God is judging, but he's not judging Rome. He's not judging Israel. The judgment is not falling upon you. The judgment is falling upon his son who is bearing your sin and my sin. If you are here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are following Christ, I want you to know your sin, every sin you committed in the past, the sin that you may have committed recently, your future sin is falling upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is judging sin. Your judgment is falling upon Him. Everybody's going to be judged. The only difference is, is will your judgment fall upon the Lamb of God or will you bear it yourself before God on that great day? God has shown up. Judgment has come. The judgment is falling upon Christ. Paul writes this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin. Our sin fell upon him. God the Father looked upon his Son as though he were a sinner and he looks upon, so that he can look upon us as though we are righteous. This is the cup that Jesus referred to in the garden. He said, Lord, if it be possible, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And we talked about that. That was the cup of God's wrath that he would drink in full. He is bearing our sin. And God is judging. One author said, hell has come to Calvary and Jesus bore its horrors in our place. Folks, I think that we do a disservice to Christ when we minimize what he accomplished. His, when we substitute self-improvement or self-esteem for atonement for sin. You see, what we need is we need a Savior. We do not need a politician. We do not need a motivational speaker. Otherwise, God would have sent a motivational speaker. If we had needed a politician, he would have sent us a politician. What we needed was a Savior, and he sent the Lamb of God to die in our place. This is it, folks. I don't know that we can minimize this. I don't know if this message would go over well in an elk club, because you and I have fallen short of the glory of God. This is our need. John said, Behold the Lamb of God that does what? He takes away the sin of the world. The angel told Joseph in the book of Matthew, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from what? Their sins. This is God, the Lamb of God, being sacrificed for your sins and for my sins. And all who call upon his name, those who future who have not yet repented of their sins, he is bearing that now. God's wrath is being poured out. He's drinking the cup of God's wrath in full. The first cosmic sign that we see. Everything, at least according to Luke, falls silent. The scoffing has stopped. And now God is present. And He's present. It is evident by the fact that darkness now covers the land for three hours. There's another sign that Luke informs us of. Another supernatural sign. He talks about how the temple veil was torn in two. This was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, I didn't put a diagram up on the screen. I apologize for that. But basically, just to give you a picture, if you are not familiar with the temple layout, it was very simple. It was the, the temple was basically a rectangular box, a rectangular room, maybe similar to this rectangular room. And it was divided in two. There was a curtain that divided it in two. And in one place they called it the Holy of Holies. And it was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And this was sometimes known as the footstool of God. It was the place where God was present. This was the place where man met God. Here's the thing. Man could not approach God and live. And so nobody could go into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, except the high priest. And he could only do it once a year. And he had to come with a sacrificial offering. 
Where God was, man wasn't. There was a place outside of that curtain of the other part of this rectangular room. And it is where the priest served. Here's the problem. God wasn't there. Where man was, God wasn't. And where God was, man couldn't go. The temple veil is torn in two. And now the dwelling place of God is with men. And where God is, man is. And where man is, God now is present. This is the coming together of this great and wonderful thing. And I've just gotten ahead of myself, but that's okay. The other thing we should note, I, I believe that this temple being torn in two is also a sign of judgment. It is judgment on the temple. You see, now that old system, that system of types and shadows that, had, that God had commanded has now been fulfilled. I hate to say obsolete because Jesus did not come and make the law obsolete. He came and fulfilled the law. So we no longer need a temple because Jesus is our temple. There is no need for a sacrifice because Jesus is the Lamb of God, our sacrifice. We have no need for a high priest because Jesus is our high priest. Everything that was signified by the temple is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is now judgment on the temple. It is no longer needed. Every Every lamb and bull and ox and goat and turtle dove that was sacrificed in the temple is now an abomination to God because we have a the Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world for our sins. We no longer offer bulls and sacrifices. This is why in many New Testament churches we do not have an altar. We have a communion table. There is no altar because the sacrifice has already been done. We have a communion table. Come and commune around the crucified and risen Lord. Judgment on the temple. Everything is now fulfilled in Jesus. Now we have access, as I talked about earlier. What was lost in Adam's rebellion? When Adam rebelled against the living God, what was lost? Access, one of the things, access to God. He was kicked out of the garden. And access back into it was guarded by, by angels with flaming swords. He could not re-enter. But God has now opened the way for mankind to come to him. Not through a curtain of linen, but we come through the sun. Look what, how the, he, the author of Hebrews recognizes or, or understands this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, not a lamb, not a goat, not a turtle dove, the new and living way that he opened us, for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What a great statement. If you do. This is exactly what is happening, folks. We now have confidence to enter where we could not enter. How? Through the body, the crucified body of Christ. And we can do that because we have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and we can go through the curtain, not a curtain of linen, of fine linen, of fine twisted linen, but through the crucified body of Christ. And we have a great high priest who welcomes us in. This is why the author of Hebrews goes on. And he says, we have confidence to enter in to the presence of God. And um, we do not need to fear. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. Why can we come boldly before the throne of grace? We have no need to fear that God will somehow cast us out. We are now his children. This is great news, folks. We can come boldly. And, and, I, and I know I've said this a lot of times, but it just reminds me of that uh, of when Esther wanted to go before her husband, the king. And she was afraid, well, if he's not in a good mood, he's going to kill me. You just don't go before a king, you know, randomly. You have to hope that he's, he beckons you to come in. We're talking about the God of the universe. You and I, children of God, can enter boldly into his presence without fear of being cast out or slain because we've come, because we're sons and daughters, because of the crucified, risen Lord who bore our sins in his body on the tree that day. So these are the cosmic signs. Darkness, judgment, your sins and my sins are being judged in the person of Jesus Christ. The temple veil is torn in two. The old covenant has now been fulfilled and that man hanging on, on a cross and you and I have access into that holy of holies that where, where God is, we can now go. And where we are, God is present. In fact, 
to, he even now fills us with his spirit. So God is dwelling in us so that we are now called even the temple of God because God lives in us. Not in a temple made with hands, but in you and me. That's great access. So, Christ is on the cross. These cosmic signs occur. We should note that at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, remember darkness occurs from noon till 3, and at 3 o'clock, the first sacrificial, the first Passover lamb is sacrificed. I wouldn't be surprised at 3 o'clock, this is when Jesus breathes his last. The first sacrificial lamb has now been offered. The first and the last, it is done. It is finished. And he says this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This comes out of Psalm chapter 31, verse 5, where a righteous sufferer is seeking deliverance from his enemies. But the one thing that Jesus adds to this that the psalmist does not add or does not include, Father. What a great term that is. Father. Into your hand. I am utterly and completely trusting in you, Father, to do exactly what has been planned from eternity past. It is an expression of faith. Father, I trust completely in you. What a great picture. What great final words. It is an expression of submission to the Father's will. I will do exactly what I've done. Everything you've wanted me to do. And now I entrust myself to you. That you will deliver me. And there Jesus breathes his last breath. And Jesus dies. The remainder of our text, Luke records the reactions of people to this event. And I think they're significant. I won't spend much time with them, but I think they're significant. They react to the death of Jesus Christ, and I think much of the reaction, um, their reaction comes from seeing this supernatural darkness. They know it's supernatural. They know something has happened. And the centurion is the first one that Luke records. Luke records. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. He saw what had taken place. What did he see? Another guy die? I wonder how many thousands of people he's seen crucified. Certainly he saw Jesus' righteous actions. Certainly I'm sure the glory of God was brilliant. He saw the darkness. And he saw Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He saw a man on the cross saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he saw that darkness. And, he, and the centurion, a Gentile, gives praise to God. And don't forget, Luke loves to talk about how Gentiles come to know Christ. Luke loves the outcast. Luke loves to talk about the downtrodden and the, those on the fringes of society and the nobodies and the unwanted and the, the ones that, that are uh, unrecognized by culture and by society. Luke loves that person. And Luke, the whole gospel of Luke is, is really themed around the outcast. And now we have an outcast. The very first person that Luke mentions is not somebody from the upper ruling class, but a Gentile, a soldier who was unclean. This man says, this man was a, the, truly, he was the son of God. And he also says this, that man was innocent. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you know we've been focusing on, Luke focuses on the innocence of Jesus. This is now the seventh declaration in just maybe a chapter of Jesus' innocence. Luke is focusing on the fact that Jesus was innocent. And this Gentile recognizes that Jesus, not his accusers, stand before God without blame. Only Jesus stands before the Father without blame. Everyone, the rest of us are guilty. That man was innocent. We're not. He's the Son of God. He suffered unjustly. He is who he claimed to be. And this is just 
reminded me of the passive text where Jesus said, if I, I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And here, a Gentile is being drawn to the sinless, innocent Lamb of God slain for our sins. So that's the first thing. The first reaction. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was innocent. And he's a Gentile. The next thing we see is the crowds. And I thought this was interesting because all the crowd had assembled for this spectacle. That's an interesting word. Spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. When people in the... In the Bible, when it talks about people beating their breasts, this is talking about lamenting or remorse or, oh my gosh, we have sinned. We've done something wrong. And now they're going away from the crucifixion. I think they see the darkness. They know that God is present in judgment and they go away going, maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all to kill that man. What in the world have we done Now he's dead and it's just too late. He was innocent. And some have suggested a link between this passage of text and Peter's first sermon as recorded in the book of Acts. And remember, Luke wrote them both. And some have suggested a link between this event where the crowd goes home beating their breasts And Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost where he called people to repent and many Jews repented that day. In other words, they leave Calvary recognizing their sin but having no idea of how to atone for it. And then Peter, 50 days later, says, this Jesus whom you crucified is the one who will bear your sins and you need to repent and be baptized and you will be forgiven of your sins. And these ones go away hopeless and helpless and not knowing what to do. And on the day of Pentecost, Jesus delivers them the remedy and gives them the solution to that which they, for which they are grieved and they repent and call upon the name of the Lord. I think there's another interesting lesson here, and that is sin usually looks good and then um, afterwards we go away feeling condemned. Sin looks good, then we partake, and then we feel guilt. If you're here today and you've sinned against the Holy Lord, and there is guilt, I want you to know that Jesus is the remedy. Jesus is the answer. And Jesus is capable and willing to forgive you of your sin. If you are a believer in Christ, um, that's why Samuel had a time where we can have a few moments where we can repent of our sins. And then a time of assurance that God does forgive us of our sins. If you are not a believer today, I would um, encourage you, I would admonish you, I would exhort you. Um, this is a day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord. This Jesus who died on the cross is the one who will bear your sins. And he is the only one. He even said, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass. There was not another way. This was the only way. So don't believe this idea that, well, maybe there, there's all sorts of different ways to God. At least not according to God. This is it. And this is sufficient. It's not like this is it. It's somehow that's like, well, this is as good as you're going to get. No, this is as good as it gets. This is good news. We also should note the, fo the followers that Luke records and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance. So his, his acquaintances, again, Luke note, notes the women who are involved. They watch from a distance. They are hopeless. They are helpless. They have to be wondering what in the world just happened. Is this the end of it? Is this really the end? It's been a good three years, but is this the end now? This is the guy we, we thought was the Messiah. We thought this was the one whom God was going to, to work through. And now he's dead. I just saw him breathe his last breath. I saw the, the soldier stick his spear in his side and water and blood came out. Evidence that the man is dead. You don't overcome that. These people are familiar with death. 
And they know that dead people don't come back to life. Dead people are not resurrected. That doesn't happen. What in the world just happened? They have no idea what glory is to await them. Next few days are going to be really, really dark. And they have no idea what glories await them. These women are going to come to the tomb in a few days and they, they're expecting a dead man. And they are going to experience the risen Lord. But right now, they have to be wondering what in the world just happened. We also see a, a response or a reaction from a guy by the name of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. This is the Sanhedrin Neva, the kids in here know what a Sanhedrin is? Yeah, Evan? Yep. Yep, it's the ruling council. Very good. We talked about Sanhedrin a few weeks ago, and so every once in a while I bring it up. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he works to bury Christ. We should also note, John tells us that there was another member of the Sanhedrin present. And his name was Nicodemus. That's right, the same Nicodemus from John chapter 3. The Nicodemus who said, how is a person born again? Can a man enter back into his mother's womb and be born? How does that happen? Jesus rebukes him, chastises him. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Really? You should know these things. This man, Nicodemus, joined with Joseph of Arimathea and they sought the body of Christ to bring it and bury, it, bury the body in the tomb that Joseph owned. Burial is an important aspect in Paul's gospel. Remember, he says, um, this is my gospel that I preach to you, that Jesus was born according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. He was dead, buried, rose again, as the creed says. This is part of the gospel. A couple things that we can probably draw from this. Number one, God is faithful. There is a faithful remnant even within the corrupt um, system that Jesus encountered. Even in that corruption, there is a remnant. There is Joseph, who's a believer. There is Nicodemus, who's a believer. There may have been others. We don't know, but these two men seem to have come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ. They believed in the Messiah, and I don't think they understood all that's going to go on, but Joseph says, at least, i got something I can give. I've got a tomb. Tombs were expensive, especially tombs cut out of um, rock. It had never been used before. This does a couple of things. First of all, we, we see the love and that, that Joseph had, that I will give him this, which is very expensive. We also see that there is prophetic fulfillment here. First of all, we see the prophetic fulfillment in the fact that when a person was crucified, what they did with the body was they just threw it into the garbage dump and it was burned. Um, or it was left just to rot on a cross and the birds and the animals would pick it apart. But what does the prophet say? I will not allow his body to undergo corruption. Joseph's fulfilling prophecy. He doesn't even know it. And then the prophet Isaiah tells us that, in a, that Jesus will be buried with a rich man. He tells us in chapter 53, Isaiah 53, 9, he says, And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, even though he had done no violence. And so we see the prophetic word being sure. Jesus dies and he's buried. He dies as a criminal, as an insurrectionist, and he's buried with honor. And then finally we see these, the women again who had come with him from Galilee and they followed and saw the tomb. And they returned and they prepared spices and ointments. The women here are desiring to honor this dead Jesus. But, do, but they also honor the law that he's fulfilled. It's the Sabbath day. They can't do anything. 
And so in honor of the Sabbath day that Jesus fulfilled, they go and they rest and they're going to come back. And now all goes silent. Pretty much everything's silent for the next few days. But it's not going to remain silent for long. Sunday's coming. And so I'll, I'll close with this. Jesus was sent for a purpose. You need to remember that. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, the Bible refers to those of us in that state as being lost. But if you, you hear the voice of Christ, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. And if you're hearing that voice, repent and turn from your sins. Christ is calling. He came to seek and to save you. Jesus also said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And if you have a super secret phrase that you need to fill in, that might be a, a good idea. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself or to me. Jesus died for a purpose, to seek and to save the lost. The way he was going to do that was to be lifted up. And by being lifted up um, on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. And the way that our sins are, are covered, the way our sins are atoned for, the way our sins are, are blotted out are through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. I understand substitutionary death. That is him for us. You deserve to die. He died in your place. You are now alive and righteous. You and I are sinners. Christ bore our sins and became sin on our behalf and we are now the righteousness of God. We are now rendered or reckoned as righteous. God the Father looks upon us as righteous because the Son of God atoned for our sins and took upon him our iniquity. I pray that I've been faithful to God's text this day. I pray that um, we would take it to heart. Um, while this is a very serious message today, it is one that is good news. This is really good news. But wait, next week even gets better. As if it could get better. It does. It gets better. Because the day today the payment is made, and our next week we will see payment is accepted, and we are free from our sins. Let's stand and let's pray. Our holy God, there is none like you. Who could fathom such wisdom? Who could contemplate your ways? They are unsearchable. Father, mankind sinned, so man owes the debt. But God is the offended one, and God is the only one who can pay the debt. What is the answer? The answer is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is both God, who has the means to pay the debt, and is man who, ha who owes the debt. And through the, the man, Jesus Christ, fully divine, fully man, our debt is paid. Who would have thought of that? What a great, great solution. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I'm glad we sang that song, Lord. So we come before you this day. Father, I pray that if there are any here today who need to call upon your name, to repent of their sins, whether for the first time calling upon you and to be born again. We pray, Father, that they would respond to the gospel. But there may be others, Lord God, who are just here today and they're believers, Lord God, but they've strayed, they've wandered, they're not following after you, Lord. I pray that you'd convict them of their sin. They'd call upon you and have assurance that because of the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, they can stand in confidence and come boldly before the throne of grace, unashamed. Lord, we will stand before you, unashamed. We give you praise, we give you thanks, and we are um, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.
Marvelous and wonderful. Let's go ahead and uh, I think we can get our benediction on there. What we do here is we bless one another before we leave. And uh, this is how we bless one another. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.